Welcome to Life, Death, Law. I'm Liza Hanks. This movement I think that we're part of is not just to make your final days less hard. Uh, I think the idea really is for us to grasp the full nature of reality and find a way to love it and, and work with it and delight in it and appreciate it and feel it while we're still alive. That's Dr. B.J. Miller, an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and co-author with Shoshana Berger of a great new book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, a practical, comprehensive guide to dying, but more importantly, how to live fully until you do. I asked BJ to be on the show because he's a passionate and articulate advocate for living life fully and meeting death with honesty and care. His new book is full of really practical advice for those facing serious illness and their caregivers. Things like what to bring with you to the hospital, how to tell your boss that you're really sick, and how to handle sex and intimacy in the face of critical illness. If you're facing a serious diagnosis or taking care of someone who is, please listen to today's show. You'll feel less isolated, less confused, and more empowered. Well, listen, I got to tell you, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. And, you know, the whole point of my podcast is to explore the same territory that you do in this book, which is that, you know, death is universal and we so seldom talk about it. And it can be so isolating when it really shouldn't be, you know, I mean, it's like sex. We all do it. We all have questions about it. And we're so usually so self-conscious about asking any of them. So I think it's a great book. Well, thanks, Liza. I I, I, I share your hypothesis. You know, there's something happening, right? Thanks to work like yours and mine. And, you know, there, there's something cracking open, it feels like. And maybe, maybe the shaming and isolation, maybe, maybe we can start making a dent in that. So anyway, I think you and I share the same mission. Yeah. I mean, you write in the book that, you know, next to birth, death is one of our most profound experiences. And shouldn't we talk about it, prepare for it? And use what it can teach us uh, about how to live. And I think that's so well put. Yeah. Actually, my whole frustration with the book was the whole time I was reading it, I was annoyed that I hadn't written it. But I I got (laughs) over that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're very – well, thank you for – did you actually sit and read the thing? You're amazing. I I did. I I didn't – I did read it. I just really – I really like the tone of the book, too, um, and the depth of the information. So. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't want to talk about the paperwork chapter because that that I've covered in uh, exhausting depth in my own life. And I I think that the palliative care and the hospice piece is beautiful. But I was wondering if you could talk some about some of the really practical things that you offer in this book, like, you know, the hospital hacks and how to tell people that you're sick and how to deal with their own distress when you actually need care. Yeah. You know, and also the the love, sex, and relationship part. I thought those were such juicy parts of the book. And I've never seen them really addressed in any of the death and dying books that I've um, been looking at over the last couple of years. Yeah. No, we, we were, yeah, we were surprised at that. And, and as you can imagine, as writers or trying to be writers, it was, we were kind of happy that in a way that that very important territory really had not been covered. It's a huge deal. And it comes up in my clinic a lot. Well, what comes up in clinic a lot is the fact that no one talks about it, <laughs> yet everyone's thinking about it. But anyway, um, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about all those things. That sounds like a really good 
that sounds like a fun conversation. Yeah, we'll start, maybe start with your, do you have a favorite part of the book or do you have some, a good story that you could share with my listeners about what, you know, motivated you to write it? What motivated me to write it? That's, that's kind of, that's an easier question in a way. As a physician, I mean, as a human being, I think more and more of us are going to be either ill ourselves or loving someone who is. And, and just thanks to sort of demographic shifts, the idea of illness, vulnerability, mortality, these, 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 these subjects that somehow kind of we got seduced away from the last hundred or so years, you know, they're, they're, kind of, they're coming roaring back just, just based on volume. I mean, we're all, these issues are going to become increasingly less exotic and much more familiar, but you know, that's going to be folding, unfolding over years. And in the meantime, as a clinician, as a disabled person, as the son of a disabled person, it feels like, man, there's such a need for just basic information. Like I, sp- I spend a lot of time in clinic kind of going over very, very fundamental issues around these subjects. Um, but because the subject's been so undertreated, there's, you know, the bar is low. So the, 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 the groundhog day of feeling of, as a physician in clinic and sitting there with folks, so many people who are suffering so unnecessarily for a lack of information or a lack of basic support. You know, you see that over and over and over again. So that, that was what made me kind of, well, that was what made me step out of full-time clinical work about eight years ago to try to get out in the community and, and work at, uh, at Zen Hospice as a community organization and try to kind of demedicalize the issue and get out in the community Th- that, and, and start thinking about systems issues versus sort of one-on-one, the one-on-one work of being a doctor. And so, yeah, so that was about eight years ago. And then the book became sort of an outgrowth of just working with my friend Shoshana at IDEO and really feeling like, huh, maybe I could someone who doesn't identify as a writer, maybe I could actually, maybe I could put some words to paper that would be useful. And it became the creative challenge to myself. And I, and I was just convinced that the world needed, needed something like I was trying to do. Well, could you talk a little bit more specifically about some of the basic information that you feel people really suffer for the lack of? Mm, sure. A good example is people just don't know what the heck palliative care is. Right. A lot of people know hospice. But many of those folks who know what hospice is also have misunderstandings. I, I am shocked at how often I hear from folks, I'll be in a cab or whatever, just talking to someone in an airport. We'll talk about hospice and, and they'll say very casually things like, oh, well, yeah, well, that's where, that's where you go. Uh, that's where they kill you. <laughs> like, like no joke phrases like that. It's just, I like, whoa. I mean, it's just, it can be stunning that there's, there's really a group of people there, there really are folks who believe that hospice actually hastens your death. So why don't you disabuse my listeners of that notion and talk yeah. a little bit about what you see its value is. Yeah. So the whole, the, the mission of hospice, uh, and then we'll cut to pout of care in a second. Uh, the mission of hospice is, is really, is, is very simply to help you live until you die. You know, hospice, no one in hospice is invested in, like I as a hospice doc, I'm in no way invested in you. I, I don't want you to die as my patient. I'm not looking forward to that. I'm not trying to make that happen. But we do start with the 
organizing principle that death is going to happen no matter what any of us does. And because of that fact, not because we love death, but because we love life and death is a part of life, we say, huh, well, this period is a very profound period. And this is when life feels particularly precious. And it's a very potent zone to be hanging out in. And it also happens to be a zone that people where people are extremely vulnerable and where we really need each other and where our interdependence really shines. It's really so, so, so again, the basic principle of hospice is, is to help each other live as well as can be until we die. That's a very important distinction. We are invested in hospice. We are invested in, in living. And we just acknowledge that death is a part of that deal. Well, you know, when I work with my estate planning clients and they constantly say things like, well, if I die and I stop them and I say, um, are you onto something that I'm missing? Because I think when, <laughs> you know, we can laugh about it because I'm working with people when it's still often not a real, not a, not a really salient reality for them at the, at that moment. You know, it may be the first time they've ever thought about it in a systematic and real way, but for many of my clients, it's it's a long way off. Not not for all. I definitely have people at the end of their lives too, but they never say if. <laughs> you know, they they know the difference. It was a funny moment working on the book with my co-author Shoshana, and she was <laughs> she caught herself. She was labeling this. We have this thing called a "When I Die" file. We talked about in the book of just sort of so much of what you do, helping sort of people break down the paperwork and what they need to kind of think about. And anyway. We create this when I die file, so we're so we're ready. But the first iteration was titled "If I Die" file. Right, that's just so human. It just it makes me laugh every time, you know, because yeah. because it's what we do. I mean, we all think it's going to happen to somebody else, and it's never going to happen yeah. to us. So, well, you know, and, and on that note, actually, it's, it, it, I think it's an important point too, which is, I earlier on in my work, I was more aghast at our denial as a, as a species, you know, and denial is sort of shorthand for a lot of different things, but right. aversion, uh, fear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I have come and I, I kind of felt like this was just pure human folly that we didn't pay attention to this. And I, I, I've softened on that. I've watched in my, myself how quickly I can get abstract on the subject as though it's not really going to happen to me as though I am going to live forever. I catch myself doing it all the time. I think part of part of why this work is interesting and difficult is that we have in us hormones, social cues, we got all sorts of things that pull us away from death, that we are sort of wired to fight it or flight it or freeze. And that, that that's, that's very real. So I think one of the things I, I've kind of begun to do is to help people not feel bad about not thinking about their death because it's actually kind of hard. Okay, so let's talk some about some of the chapters of the book. Yeah, well, there's, there are so many ways into the subject. I'll just pick, I'll pick one just because it's one of my favorites. It runs the risk of feeling a little esoteric, but maybe let's see if we can talk it out because I honestly think it's not. So for me, the world, you know, no matter what we believe, no matter what your belief systems are and what you think is coming after death moment you know there's something even if there is eternal life there's something about this particular body that we have this particular life so i have so as a common denominator of working with folks of various beliefs and faiths etc i have come to sort of 
kind of focus on the body as the one thing that we can all agree is going to die. This body, this life is going to end. And we can, with perspective, kind of put, help, help mollify the terror of that. In so many ways, we do live on. We live on in the hearts and minds of people whom we've affected. We live on through other kinds of forms of legacy. If we let ourselves, we can, we'll dissolve into the ground and become blades of grass and trees. I mean, that's just, that's, that's sort of an empirical version of immortality. That, that, that happens. But still, it doesn't lessen the blow that this, this life's got to go. And so when I think about that, that fact, I come back to the body. And when I think about my body, I say, well, what, what is the, why do I care to have this body? Why am I going to be sad to miss it? And my answer to my own question, and as I've worked through it with patients is, well, you know, this body gets to feel things. It gets to smell things, touch things, taste things. It gets to move. And so it, it moves me through time and space. That's, that's why I love my body. That's why I'm sad when it's sick. That's why I'll be sad to see it go. So I name all that to, to point our attention to the world of the senses, the aesthetic world. Not, not aesthetic as in pretty, but just, just sensation, just the world of direct sensory experience. That, uh, I would make the argument, is about as elemental as it can get. That word aesthetics kind of sounds arty-farty or philosophical and maybe off-putting, but I'm just talking about feeling stuff. And we humans have a real aesthetic drive. Uh, we do things because they have a certain feeling. And we also do things for their own sake. You know, it's, it, 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 it is value enough in a life to just feel something. I agree. You know, when I was reading your book, I was remembering I had a dear friend who died of geoblastoma. And, you know, I was there when she got the diagnosis. You know, we, we all kind of created this community of care around her. And none of us had really faced death before because, you know, that disease hits you in your early 50s usually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there was this one day about three months before she died when I picked some peaches off a tree and I made a peach pie and I drove up to Berkeley. And we all sat down and ate the pie. She wasn't even speaking very well by then. Mm -hmm. It was just right at the end of actually being able to eat. But, man, that was a good pie. And that was a great yeah. day, you know, and, yeah. and that's exactly what you're talking about. Yep. You got it. And it's, and the, the, there's so many reasons to kind of love this subject. It doesn't take any time to feel anything. So if we're worried about the clock and how much time we have left, well, you don't need much time to feel something, you know, and I think a lot of us worry about our mentation. We're so attached to our brains, our frontal lobes, our intellects, and you know, Hey, it's a useful tool, but I guess, when you start really looking, it's important to name the world beyond the intellect. And there is value. There's, a, there's an experience to be had even when you can't think about it. And it is in this realm of the senses. So how, how do you work with your patients around that? And what, how, do you treat, how do you touch on that in the book? So that's sort of a backdrop. You know, practically speaking, how this translates, and the book is meant to be very practical more than philosophical or uh, or, or, or as such, but so so okay. Taking that backdrop, well, we translate that. You know, in the book, I don't really talk much about aesthetics per se, but I do talk. We do we do talk about touch and the importance of contact and the importance of staying in your body on some level. And it's it's so hard when we're sick because our body becomes a source of pain. So, in my own experience, and the many people I work with. 
it's hard enough to be in our body these days anyway. There's so many things pulling us into our brains. But when we're sick and our body's screaming at us or doing what we don't want it to do or stinking or, you know, excreting stuff, I mean, you know, it can get pretty gnarly. The propensity is, of course, to turn away from this thing that's causing agony. And what we end up doing is sort of abdicating our bodies accidentally. In this way, we can, we die before we have to die. It's one of the ways we die before we die. So naming that and just the, the chapter that touches most directly in this book is the love, sex, and relationships chapter. And of course, a lot of that is about interpersonal dynamics and relationship dynamics. But of course, all that also relates to being back in your body, being present with reality, with physical reality, and, and sharing I mean, so much of what partnership is about, I think, is about contact and sharing and touch and safety. So we kind of reground folks and try to reestablish that safety for couples and for individuals. And through simple exercises, like you already named it. Next time you're eating, you know, don't think of it as just like inserting nutrition pellets. Actually stop and taste it because someday you're not going to be able to taste that peach. So the preciousness is playing out as in real time. So, so, so stay present with each other, with yourself. Find some spot on your body, even if it's, a, if it's an elbow or some hair or something that doesn't hurt and nurture that. You know, don't accidentally lose touch with your whole body because part of it's yelling at you. So it's very, very basic stuff. Touch your partner, touch yourself, use your senses. You know, so there's sexuality, but you know, not all of us are sexual and some of us are sexual at the end of life. Some of us aren't. Um, but I think a bigger catchment for this is, is sensuality, just, just simply sensual engagement. And then finally, I think the last point is, is it really about sensory stuff? Well, sort of sensory stuff on behalf of just contact and feeling connected to the world you have while you have it. And that, is, in essence, is the challenge. Yeah, and I thought you touched on that really well in the hospital hacks um, chapter as well, when you talked about you know what you can ask for in the hospital yeah, um, and, and who you can call on to try to create an environment that's less antiseptic, less noisy, yep. less interrupted. Um, less depersonalizing. Maybe you could talk yeah. about that a little, you know, and when you're in the hospital or your loved one's in the hospital, maybe the first time you've been in a hospital, so you don't know how to navigate it. And by the time you figure it out, you know, the crisis is over. <laughs> That's been my experience, yeah. right? You, you become yeah. a hospital expert just after your father died, you know, and you yep. thought, oh, if I'd known that three months ago, it could have been so different for him. Yeah. But, and I think a lot of people have that experience. So I'd love it if you could share some, some of that, you know, with my listeners. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, so the, so the, so first thing to think about when you come into a hospital is to realize you're entering a wholly other world. So, so it's in terms of you know, a little bit of expectation management, really. I mean, these, these are entirely unnatural environments. You know, they are, they are really in so many ways meant to keep nature at bay. And you can feel it from the architecture to just to the gowns, to the food to the way they're set up. So, so prepare yourself for a feeling of being in a whole other world. You know, time doesn't work the same way. People are staying up all night. There are emergencies happening, priorities. Everything's in triage. So you as a patient or your loved one may be sitting there and having a real problem with pain 
or needs to be cleaned after a bowel movement or who knows what. And in that moment for you, it may be incredibly pressing, but then there's a realization that this, this house, this hospital, this place is stuffed full of people with, with screeching needs and theirs may be more pressing than your own. So you're constantly in this relativistic sort of triage moment. And you don't know, it can feel like your doctor doesn't give a damn about you because you haven't seen them all day. Well, the truth is that doctor may be uh, tending to someone who's bleeding out their carotid artery or something or something even worse happening for somebody else. So, so one is just to, to get it, to, to expect the unexpected, to expect to be in a different kind of world, to expect to feel foreign. And that that's not your fault for, that's not, that's not a reflection of you to take personally. It's not that the nurse or doctor doesn't care about you. It's very likely that someone else's needs are just more pressing than your own. Um, so that's sort of one point. The other point is a hospital, like most of us hate being in a hospital, but sometimes we really want to be in them. Sometimes it's like the greatest place on earth when we're really in acute trauma, like, you know, you want to be in a hospital. And so there's this, I have dealt with so many families, especially around the end of life. Well, see, dying, dying really isn't an emergency, it turns out, especially if you're dying from a you know, chronic illness, it's in some ways anticipated. So you may feel like this is incredible, profound time where you really have acute needs and time is of the essence. And you, you finally gear up to go to the hospital, wrap your heads around the need to be there. And then you get there and they say, sorry, no, we can't admit you. <laughs> that happens a lot and it's it mind-boggling for families but the point is hospitals are really reserved for acute trauma and for insurance to pay for it for the hospital to give up one of their precious beds to you or not give up but for to, to put you in one of their precious beds means you have to have acute fixable medical problems well you write that you know hospitals fix things and death can't be fixed i mean that's right exactly Right. So what happens to people in that situation? I mean, do they get referred to like skilled nursing or they just get sent home or? Well, very often. So it depends what's going on. So very often you may very well meet criteria to be admitted and find your way into the hospital. And still a lot of us do die in hospitals one way or another. So, so um, it may, you may find yourself, you actually may get admitted, <laughs> but very often, even if you do get admitted, maybe for a short stay, and even if you've just got weeks left to live, you might find yourself being discharged from the hospital, which can feel crazy. You know, you're like at the very, very end, maybe days left to live, and here they are, essentially, you feel like you're being kicked out. Uh, it's really, really tricky. So I guess the, the bottom line is there is to, be, to remember, like, that's a, those are places to, when you have fixable acute problems, all right? So now back to your question, if, if the hospital is discharging you or not admitting you in the first place, well, they do have a duty to make sure you have a safe place to go. So that may be home, that may be a nursing home, that may be a hospice house, uh, maybe a rehab setting. Hospitals are not filled with cruel people as a rule. They have just, they have a bunch of rules they got to deal with. One good hacking, one good hack is if you're in an emergency room, say, and they're not going to admit you, or if you're in the hospital admitted and they're going to discharge you, you want to belly up to the social worker and or the uh, case manager or discharge planner. They're very often one and the same person, usually a social worker. 
And social workers tend to be real unsung heroes of navigating the logistics and practicalities. So see if you can request a meeting with a social worker to help you think through options, where to go from here. That can be extremely helpful. And the hospital does have an obligation to make sure you have a safe place to land. They can't just wheel you to the door. Well, I think that's good for people to know because hospitals don't always make that so clear. Oh, no. No, they don't. No, they don't make any of this clear as a rule. They're too busy. You know, you have these, these, uh, this element of the book where you have pullouts for caregivers and advice yep. for caregivers. And I think that's also beautiful because, you know, caregivers play a huge role in this process and often are burned out and underappreciated and don't have a lot of resources for themselves. And I, I love that you split the focus of the book toward the sick person, but also toward the caregiver. And I wondered if you just could give my listeners some sense of some of the things you say to people who are caregiving and how to take care of themselves. It feels like this subject in this book and your work, and what, in a way we're trying to sort of, there's a maturation process happening here for our society, I think. And I think one of the ways you can tell that we're a young country is that we don't deal with aging very well. That's sort of one of the tells. And so on that note, this idea of autonomy, that you know, this rugged individual that in the States is so prevalent, well, that's, that's, a, that's it's pretty much a myth. The, the truth is we all need each other on, to various degrees, especially when we're sick. So the realization in palliative care and hospice and that we're trying to play out in this book is that sickness and death doesn't just happen to you as an individual in a vacuum. They affect ecosystems, uh, families, groups of friends, and it's, uh, everyone is relevant in the mix. So to, to, you, you really need, and, and, and caregiving is a really difficult job. You know, I like to say, so for patients, um, we have a lot of problems with our healthcare system, but at least there's a healthcare system devoted to your care. There are hospitals, there are buildings erected to help you. There's a role for you as a patient. As a caregiver, there really isn't. There are no structures for you. There's no, there are no places for you. There are no systems for you. It can be an incredibly lonely experience and incredibly difficult, but we're all, we're all going to be doing it on some level. So it's absolutely essential. So anyway, that's a little prologue. Why, so why, why the subject's important. I think, in, you know, one thing to get across when I speak with families is, is sort of what we just said that you know you patient you're going to have your experience you loved one caregiver you're going to have your experience too and and there's this Venn diagram of this this area where you both overlap with each other and it's a shared experience but each of you has to realize and show each other the respect that each of you is going through something very difficult in your for yourself too so that's one thing to just name invite the importance of the caregiver into the mix and protect the sort of sovereign nature of their suffering too. A practical tip may be sort of back to the hospital. So like, let's just say you do land in the hospital. You know, once there, you know, it, it ain't easy, but at least you know you're kind of safe for the most part. And one thing that I tell families is, so when your loved one is in the hospital and you can, you know that there's someone around 24 hours a day, yeah, it's important for you to be at the hospital too uh, and meet with the doctors to communicate, et cetera, and to support your loved one. But it's also an incredible opportunity for respite for you. Now's the perfect time for you caregiver to go get your hair cut, 
to go get a massage, to go for a walk finally, maybe even go to the gym where you haven't been in years. Whatever it is, your own care is not only, it's not only okay for you to tend to yourself. You, what, what, what caregivers got to understand is they have to tend to them. It's part of their job. It, we have this weird thing and doctors and nurses have it too, where like care, I, I'm a caregiver. I don't need to receive any care. You know, I don't need anything. I'm, I must, you know, like that's the kind of bravado machismo that goes with this, that, that can go with this. And there's a name for this is pathological altruism, where you're just giving, 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 assuming with the assumption that you don't need anything. Well, that's just hogwash. It doesn't work. That's a recipe for total burnout. And if you, and if you, the caregiver, burned out, well, you ain't going to be very good to the person you're so devoted to and love so much. So one way or another, even if you're the most selfless person in the world, your homework as a caregiver is to take good care of yourself and for your own sake. It's really difficult. One, again, one example is when you're in the hospital, take that opportunity for respite. Go take a break. Go deal with the rest of your life. Go do nothing for a, for a change. Is there any other part of the book that you'd like to, to talk about? I know you're a busy guy, so I don't want to take up more of the time than you've got. Well, let's, let's circle back to the hospital hacks. I I'm, I'm feel myself sort of going off on conceptual planes. Other things to think about when you're in the hospital, you know, yeah, there's triage happening all around you. There are other people who have needs and competition with your own, blah, 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 blah. But you don't need to, you know, you've got enough to worry about. Um, and in terms of owning your own experience, you can it can feel like a very like like you're meant to be passive as a patient hospital like your job is just to lie still and when there's there's some amount of truth to that but you you need to advocate for yourself you need to kind of own yourself so you know if you're going to be in the hospital bring your favorite quilt or your favorite pillow don't forget to bring your hearing aids or your eyeglasses bring your computer charger all the things like you're going to be living there whether it's a day or two or a week or a month you know, bring the stuff that makes you, you bring that with you, communicate that somehow that will help you stay inspired to keep going. That will help your care, help the, the staff know who you are and therefore take better care of you. So that's really, really key. Another kind of tip would be if things ain't going right, you know, if you're just not getting good care or if you're concerned, you're not, you know, usually that's just a communication problem. There's so much going on. But, you know, you can ask to convene all the doctors involved. You can ask your primary doctor, the hospitalist. You can ask them to say, hey, at some point soon, there's too much happening here. I need, can my family and I sit down with all the doctors involved at one time? A family meeting can be an incredibly useful place to kind of everyone get on the same page. And it can really be a critical piece of the puzzle, but you may need to advocate for it. Another tip would be if things, if you do all that, you make efforts at communication, you try to work through any awkwardness or unrest that's coming up with the staff, perhaps. But if, if it's just not getting what you think you need, you know, there are patient relations offices in hospitals you can call upon and talk things through. There are ethics departments or ex- ethics programs you can ask to be involved in your care if you think there's a real conceptual disagreement happening. And if you're just plain suffering, if your pain isn't getting well attended to, your nausea, whatever else it is, or you sense your family just needs more support, well, this is a great use of the palliative care team. And and more and more hospitals will have a palliative care team in them. And you can request a palliative care consult. 
you know, how proactive does a patient generally need to be to get palliative care? Yeah, well, these days I'm in the I'm in the outpatient world, um, so it's a little bit different. So you know, people make an appointment to come and you know walk in and see me, um, like you would go see you know like in, in, in any outpatient appointment. So that's a that's a that's a sort of a different pathway, a different system. If you're in the hospital, there usually will be a palliative care consult team in the hospital devoted to the hospital patients. And some hospitals will have their own rules about how to get the powder care team involved. But the basic, where you would start is ask your, talk to your hospitalist, that is the the primary care doctor taking care of you in the hospital, say, hey, I'm worried about my pain. I'm worried about my family. I'm worried about decisions that I need to make that I'm not sure what to do about. And I could really use some extra help. Do you guys have a palliative care team? Usually the official consult has to come from the, from the doctor. The doctor has to place that call, that order for the palliative care team to come. But that's how you would do it. Just start there. I want to be careful, though. Not everyone needs palliative care. The, the primary team should be able to tend to your pain, should be able to tend, talk to your family. But if those things aren't happening or aren't working and the, the suffering is intractable, then, then that's exactly what the palliative care team is for. And you as a patient or family member can advocate for that. So I have a I have a funny question for you here. the The title of your book is, you know, the Beginner's Guide to the End, and it got me thinking. So who's your reader? I mean, we're all beginning, yeah. the end, right? Like, yep, every single day. But I'm not sure most of us think of it that way. And I wondered, you know, as you two were putting this book together, you know, who is the audience? People who have been diagnosed, people who are just worried about. Mm-hmm dying and yeah. death and want to address it better or people caring for people that are facing the end. I'd just like to know a little bit about who you think the readers of this book are, uh, you know, other than people who are mortal, which is, you know, everybody. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a really, it was a very important question for us. And we spent a lot of time debating it, you know, you know, cause like, as you point out, when, when do you really start dying? When does this subject become relevant? I mean, you could really make the argument that this subject becomes relevant, you know, pretty soon after your birth, um, right. certainly as you enter adulthood. So, right. So where to begin as a, as a tool for the book and as a way to kind of guide our own tone, we wrote the book specifically t- to a person who has just gotten a diagnosis, who, you know, who, who knows that they have some big time illness. They may be years away from death. They may be days away from death. But it's written with the sensitivity of speaking to someone who is themselves sick. We did that because it's, it felt like the right thing to do. What's, what can happen as a patient is people talk over you or around you all the time. So for all sorts of reasons, it felt important to guide our comments directly to the patient, someone who is dealing with illness. Our, our hunch is that that it's probably going to be family members who are reading this book or people who are really interested in preparing themselves who aren't yet sick. Our guess is that those are going to probably be the folks who end up reading the book, but, but it's really designed for the patient. Secondarily, the caregiver. And then tertiarily is just sort of general public interested in planning. So was there anything that I didn't ask you that you wished I had? It, in some ways, like we're just framing the, the book around people who are dealing with illness and in the throes of, of vulnerability, et cetera. And the way I just set it up, you might think of this 
of your work or of this book as sort of harm reduction of, you know, like, oh my God, I'm, gonna, I'm miserable or I'm about to be in this horrible situation and I need to make it less horrible. Uh, okay, you know, that's, that's, there's some, you know, that, that's a fine motivation. But what I want to kind of get across and what I think we're on for in terms of this culture change and why, we, why we're all pushing on this subject a little bit is, is it's not just so we suffer less at the very end of our lives. The reason to think about these things earlier in life is not just to preclude pain, but because when you really wrap your head around how precious life is in the first place and how, in, how powerful a force love is and how incredibly valuable it is to appreciate you have while you have it, I, like most people, tend to appreciate things when I'm in the throes of losing them. So just to be clear, this book and uh, this sort of this movement I think that we're part of is not just to make the, your final days less hard. Uh, I think the idea really is for us to grasp the full nature of reality and find a way to love it and, and work with it and delight in it and appreciate it and feel it while we're still alive. That, that I just want to make sure to get across. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. You've just listened to my interview with Dr. B.J. Miller, the co-author with Shoshana Berger of the new book, A Beginner's Guide to the End. To learn more about The Beginner's Guide, please visit simonandschuster.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life, Death, Law. To find out more about today's episode, or to send me a question or a suggested topic for future podcasts, go to lifedeathlaw.com, send me an email at lifedeathlawpodcast at gmail.com, or call me on the Life Death Law phone line at 669-232-0872. That's 669-232-0872. To subscribe to Life Death Law, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So take care, and remember, when it comes to life and death and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. Bye. Bye.